tonight we're going to study um, fellowship, and I think this is um, one of the more important things to study for Christians today, that it, we know that what we call Christianity is divided up into several hundred different denominations, many times in such a way that one group doesn't even respect the or endorse in any sense another group. And in some ways, the division is even worse than it sounds because of the various denominations, they in turn are divided up into little groups. And of course, with the background that we have in the uh, of a fundamentalist nature among those who uh, really believe in the inspiration of the Bible, we have seen the groups that we've been affiliated with divide up any number of times. And I know I've had personal experience with a group where everybody in the congregation that was involved in the division, each believed in God, each believed in the deity of Jesus, each respected the Bible, and each were uh, had members that were very sacrificial in various ways and would come to a disagreement on some point and there would be a lot of hard feelings and then a break in fellowship. And I'm not talking about a break in fellowship just from the standpoint of, of breaking off because somebody is doing something that you cannot do in good conscience uh, that that kind of thing, I think we can see that there is a there is a place for that. But I'm talking about the kind of break in fellowship where you not only break off and, and do not worship with the other person, all, but you simply do not recognize him as a faithful Christian, that you look on him as somebody that is lost and, and doomed unless he accepts your position on whatever it is that you have a difference on. And so I think it's important to study the subject. And what I'd like to do tonight is start off in the Old Testament because... There's some passages in the Old Testament that I believe have been taken out of context in order to foster uh, this belief that you you have to withdraw from or divide from individuals that differ with you on, on certain points. And I'd like to look at the concept of fellowship as they believed it and practiced it uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. And the first passage we turn to is in Leviticus, the 10th chapter. Leviticus, the 10th chapter, and the example here of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, Jack, would you read those first, uh, let's see, first uh, three verses, please. First three verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore keeps silent. Okay, so here we have an example that two priests of God, Nadab and Abihu, offer... Uh, the New International Version says, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Uh, the King James says, strange fire before the Lord. In short, they didn't do exactly what the Lord asked them to do or in the, in the right way. And God killed them on the spot. I don't know how many times over the years I've uh, heard these few verses read and then it used as an example that somebody, no matter how sincere they are, how much they love God, uh, or whatever their credentials of that nature, that if they were doing something in their worship that was different than what I believe the Bible taught on that matter, then their worship is vain, and this is a good example, that God will have absolutely nothing to do with strange fire. For example, I've heard this used when it comes to uh, the question of whether or not to use the instrumental music in worship, that uh, uh, those that would not use it and the point of our discussion is not even determined whether it's right or wrong to use it, but whether this would be an accurate passage to throw at somebody who maybe, for the sake of argument, will say is wrong in using or at least differs with you on, on that point. And in the same way that with anything else a person might do that you would think is wrong, this is a passage that has been used to support just how strict that God holds to it when it comes to just absolute perfect obedience to his law. Well, let's look at a principle first in the Old Testament, and I'm going to come back to the 10th chapter, 
But first I want to read something here in Numbers, the 15th chapter. And then after we read this, I'd like to go back to Leviticus 1 through 10 and show that what happens there really is in perfect harmony with what is stated here. And it really, it does not teach uh, the story of Nadab and Abihu in context that, uh, that we break off fellowship or that God has nothing to do. He just breaks fellowship with individuals who happen to be wrong on some particular point. Uh, I'm in Numbers 15, beginning with verse uh, 22. He says, uh, and I'm reading from the NIV. Now, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands, the Lord gave Moses any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the day the Lord gave them, continuing through generations to come. And if this is done unintentionally, without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering. Okay, so he makes a statement here that if anyone does something unintentionally in failing to keep the Lord's commands, that a sacrifice was to be offered when they found out about it. Okay, then uh, in verse 25, it says, The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, for they will be forgiven, for it was not intentional. And they have brought to the Lord for their wrong an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But, verse 27, if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. And then he comes on down to verse 29. He says, one law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he's native-born or Israelite. Right, now notice in those verses, there is the assumption on the part of Moses that there would be times when an individual, times when a congregation, times when even a priest sinned unintentionally. And when they became aware of that, they just simply presented their offering or sacrifice to God. But they were not cut off. They were not withdrawn from. God did not break fellowship or anything. And of course, we know that that sacrifice they offered was a type of the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And the point is, the assumption was that sometimes they would sin unintentionally. And that a sacrifice could take care of that. Then look at verse 30. But if anyone who sins defiantly, but anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people, because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Now we see where fellowship is broken in the Old Testament. When a person defiantly sins, when he knows and understands God's law in some particular point, and he willfully sins and refuses to repent of it, it says that individual is to be cut off. It said in verse 31 that he has despised the Lord's word and broken his command. And that person must be cut off. His guilt remains on him. So the principle laid down by Moses in Numbers 15 is that on the one hand, Moses assumes that there would be times when individuals, the community, when even the priest sin unintentionally through ignorance. And he made mention of the fact that there would be a sacrifice that would offer for this each time. God did not break fellowship with a Jew who sinned in ignorance. But for this Jew that sinned defiantly, who understood and, and knew what God's law was on that point, and then he said it was as if he despised God's law and he was cut off, there was no sacrifice, there was no remission of sins for that. That was a person that God broke fellowship with. Now, this is important to me because the question I'm going to have to answer in my own mind, do I break fellowship from somebody that God doesn't break fellowship from? And the question is, when does God break fellowship with someone? Well, in the case of the Jew, Moses said that God broke fellowship whenever a person defiantly despised his law, willfully sinned, and refused to repent of it. That God did not break fellowship with individuals, whether it was even a priest or the community or a leader or whoever it might be, who sinned in 
ignorance that there was the opportunity there and when they became aware of the sin they could offer the sacrifice okay now let's go back over here and look at uh, Leviticus 10 again because we've said that God killed made Adam and Abihu based on their sin here well one thing we've learned over here in Numbers if Nadab and Abihu were in ignorance of their sin. In other words, they're a sincere priest and they ignorantly sin and God killed them. And then it seems to me we have a, a contradiction with what Moses said over Numbers. Because that uh, there he said even a priest could sin unintentionally. So before I even read any more in, in this Leviticus 10, my assumption would have to be that unless there's a contradiction in the Bible, that Nadab and Abihu sinned willfully and defiantly. And it's an example of how God dealt with two men who despised his word and just simply defiantly sinned against him. But let's go back and look at it. And I think a good place to start is earlier in Leviticus in the uh, fourth chapter. Let's start back to the fourth chapter. Beginning with verse uh, 1. Let's see. Barbara, would you read that uh, uh, verses 1 through 3? The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Okay, now look at what he says here. He said, if anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, Okay, if the anointed priest sins and brings guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect. Okay, Nadab and Abihu were priests, and they didn't get a chance to bring any bull as a sacrifice. God killed them. And so the statement is right here that anyone who sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. Okay, now let's come on over to chapter 4 and look at verse 13. Uh, Jack, would you read that 13 and... 14, please. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering, and bring it before the tent of meeting. Okay, now look at that. It says in verse 13, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and they do what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. But notice now, when they become aware of the sin they committed, then they offer the sacrifice. All right, so we see there that when a person sins unintentionally, it's still sin. But the point is, he cannot repent of that sin until he becomes aware of it. And so, there is the assumption on Moses' part that there would be times when the entire community would be caught up in an unintentional sin, something they thought they was right on when really they were wrong, something they was doing in a wrong way and they thought was a right way. And his only comment on it is that when they become aware of it, then they can go ahead and offer their sacrifice. But the point is, it did not break fellowship with God. They had the right you know, the sacrifice, and they were in that relationship. And keep in mind that when they offered the sacrifice, that sacrifice was a type of Christ's sacrifice in the New, in the New Testament. Okay, come on over to uh, verse 22 now, in that same chapter. It says, when a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring his offering. Okay. So again, he assumed that sometimes leaders, you know, it's interesting because you can read over Deuteronomy 17, where God commanded that the Israelite kings that he knew would eventually come into being, that they actually study his law. That was one of the commands, that the kings would study God's law. But even though they studied, there still is the assumption that there would be times when they would unintentionally sin. And he says that, again, the, it, it's still sin, but a person could not repent of it 
until he became aware of it. And so the assumption is there that leaders, priests, and the entire congregation would sometimes sin, and they would not be able to repent until they became aware of it. When they become aware of it, then they can go ahead and repent. Okay, look at verse 27. Uh, Barbara, read that 27 and 28 of Leviticus 4. If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without defect. Okay, look at that again. If a member of the, a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when he's made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring his offering and offering. Again, he has to become aware of it, and there is the assumption that there would be times that people would sin in ignorance. Okay, now, uh, let's see, over in the fifth chapter, uh, look at verse uh, 3. If a person touches human uncleanness, this is something relative to the law of Moses for them, anything that would make him unclean, even though he is unaware of it, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. Okay? In, come on down to verse 4, right in the middle of the verse. In any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though he's unaware of it, in any case, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess. And as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb, etc. Okay. So, there again, you, you sin... Whether you understand that you've sinned or not, it's obviously still wrong and it's sin. But the point is, you really don't feel guilt in your mind until you know that you've sinned. All right? Guilt is a motivating factor to cause one to head in the direction of repentance and to, to want to get himself right. In other words, guilt, I'm saying, is a, is a good... If you feel guilty, that's a healthy sign for you. And so, here's an individual then who sinned, but he doesn't know he sinned. He feels absolutely no guilt at all. How can he repent when he doesn't even, doesn't even feel guilty? But then when he becomes aware of it, then he's responsible to go ahead. And so we see that, that on the one hand, that God makes a difference between willful, defiant sins and sins in ignorance. But then on the other hand, when a person who has sinned in ignorance, when he does become aware of his sin and all, well, then God expects him to go ahead and and repent. And if he doesn't, my understanding would be that then he would be defiant towards God if he did not. Okay, now, come on over to, uh, let's see, uh, chapter 10 again. Let's just skip on over to chapter 10. And look at the context here. We read about Nadab and Abihu, and they're offering strange fire before the Lord. And let's notice the statement right after that in verse 4. Moses summoned Mishuel and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle, Zile, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them still in their tunics outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Elazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkept, do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives in the house of Israel may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed before. Okay, then, verse 8, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. So, the indication is, from the entire context, here God not only kills those two sons, but he tells Moses and Aaron not, not even to mourn for them. And then his next statement after that is that you need to distinguish between the holy and the unholy and says, you don't drink any wine when you go on duty. And neither you nor your sons are you will die. And he's just killed Nadab and Abihu. The indication to my mind is that Nadab and Abihu were drunk based on the comment that is made from, by God to Moses and what he's to tell the priest immediately after this, the statement that they would die and all. And so the indication is that they had so little reverence or so much of a lack of a reverence for God, so much of a lack of respect for his will, that they just went out and got drunk and then they went on duty. So you do not have an example of some sincere 
individual that's trying to do what's right and then God killing them. You have somebody that seems to be in absolute rebellion and very defiant towards God and making a mockery of the entire process. And so it would be a misuse, in my judgment, to take an example like Nadab and Abihu and come up to the our situations today and we find this people doing something in their worship, whatever it may be, that you and I would differ with, you see. Maybe they don't partake of the Lord's Supper exactly the time that you and I think is the correct time. Maybe their song service is not exactly like, uh, you know, I think it should be, or some other part of the service, or, or whatever it may be. But yet we look at the, those people, and we find individuals there that love the Lord, and who love his word, and it's obvious by the fruits of their life that uh, that they have actually repented, and and we see the morality, the sacrifice, and everything. in other words, that every, by all indications they love the Lord just as much as we do, and yet they do some things that you and I differ with. Well, we may differ with them, but I'm going to suggest it's wrong to use Nadab and Abihu in a context where God is dealing with willful, defiant sin. And where in that same context, he actually allows for sins that people will commit in ignorance. And we see mercy for people that will commit sins in ignorance. For us to take Nadab and Abihu totally out of a context where it makes it clear that God is merciful towards sins committed in ignorance and that he looks on them completely different than willful, defiant sins. And so we take them in their willful, defiant sin out of the context of mercy in Leviticus, and we see the summation of, of that type of thing in, in Numbers 15, 22 through 31. And we bring it up to the New Testament and use that as an example to apply to somebody that we know is just as sincere as we are and just honestly differs with us on some points uh, for whatever the reason might be. And so suffice it to say, it seems to me that no matter what anybody thinks about fellowship on some of these matters, that it literally is a misuse to use Nadab and Abihu in that way. Okay, now, another passage in the Old Testament, uh, we'll just quote it, in uh, Hosea 4, verse 6, a statement is made that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And often there's a state, that passage is used and say, hey, look at this, lack of knowledge is no excuse. Uh, if God's people are wrong on something because they don't know enough, they're still going to be destroyed. There's no excuse. But when we look at that passage in its context, and we read the whole verse, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I have rejected you from being the priest. And so we have a situation where Hosea is talking about priests of God who have absolutely rejected the knowledge of God and have refused to teach it to the people. And so you do not have a case where somebody is unwillfully ignorant about something, we have a case where people are making the willful decision to be ignorant and are simply rejecting the knowledge that comes from God. Well, there again, that is in no sense a parallel with somebody who may be seeking truth on whatever the matter and just simply is, is ignorant because he hasn't figured that particular point out or come in contact with it. And like we said, Hosea was a preacher of the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, as we read in Numbers and Leviticus both, had compassion and mercy in it for that individual that was in a covenant relationship with God and yet sinned unintentionally or unwillfully. Okay, come over here to uh, the Gospels now. And notice the same principle. In, uh, and I, what, I mean, what I mean by the same principle, I'm talking about an attitude towards... Uh, sin that is simply a result of ignorance, not sin that is willful and, and premeditated. In John 15 and verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Or, as the King James said, they have no cloak for their sin. Now look at that statement. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. So Jesus is saying there that the things that I'm teaching, that if I had not spoken it to them, if they didn't know it, they would actually have an excuse or a cloak for their sin. 
But now there is no excuse. And so Jesus, and by the way, this comes forth from Jesus several times. He definitely recognized more accountability in keeping with the knowledge and understanding of the individual. Even pertaining to his own deity, he made the statement in verse uh, 24, If I had not done among them that which no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet have hated both me and the Father. Well, in this context, Jesus has come preaching to Jews who are already believers in the true God. And he has presented himself as the Messiah and the Son of God. Well, he said, if I had not performed these miracles before them, then they would not be guilty of rejecting me. I mean, how could they know that he was the Son of God? But now they have seen the miracles. They've seen the evidence. They've seen the witness. So now there, there is no excuse. But again, the recognition on his part that even though he was the Son of God, this great new truth that was going to be revealed to Israel, they could not be expected to embrace until they had the evidence and the information that was necessary. Okay, now, come on over to uh, uh, John. I would say 1 John. 1 John, the first chapter. Okay, now this hits directly on the subject of fellowship, both with uh, our fellowship to God and our fellowship with one another. Uh, Jack, would you read that starting in uh, verse 6, please? Uh, 1 John 1 and 6 through verse 10. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, look what he says. If we claim to have fellowship with him, verse 6, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Okay, there's no question there. Whatever it is to walk in darkness, if, you, if you're walking in darkness, you're not in fellowship, and you're actually lying if you say you are. That's a plain statement. The question is, you know, what's involved in walking in darkness, do you? Uh, are you in darkness because you're ignorant on some particular point uh, uh, concerning the teaching of, of Jesus? Are you in darkness just simply because you're not right on every single solitary thing? What's he talking about? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So we see that walking in darkness equals no fellowship with God and no fellowship with anybody else in, in Christ. But on the other hand, walking in light means fellowship with God and fellowship with with one another. Okay, now, we have fellowship with one another, if we walk in the light, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, his word has no place in our lives. Okay, now, walking in the light obviously does not involve perfection because he says if you walk in the light, the blood will cleanse you of sin. So obviously, while you walk in the light, there is sin to be cleansed out. Then the question is, what is the difference between the sin when you're in the light and the sin when you're in the darkness? Because obviously, the darkness involves sin because you're out of fellowship with God, and that's what puts you out of fellowship with God. But if you walk in the light, you're in fellowship with him, even though you're in sin. So obviously, John has two different types of sin under consideration here. Well, then he goes on and says that if we confess our sins, and he's faithful and forgive us our sins, and if we claim to not have sinned, we make him out to a liar, and his word has no place in us. Well, again, I'd ask the question, how do you confess a sin until you first realize that you are in sin? Just like we read in the Old Testament, we talk about the uh, New Testament as being the covenant of grace and the covenant of mercy, the covenant of the Spirit, as opposed to the covenant of the letter. But even in that covenant of the letter, there was mercy to the extent 
that God realized that people would sin in ignorance, and he also realized that there's no way they can confess it until they become aware of it. And so obviously, if that would be true then, you would at least expect that same thing in the New Testament. And so we see that people walk in the light. While they're in the light, they have sin. As they become aware of that sin, they need to confess it. There's some things I think we're aware of all the time. For example, the law to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't believe there's any one of us that perfectly fulfills that law. I believe Jesus was the only person. So I, I know I walk and constantly realize that I fall short of those two commands. And so what am I going to do? Here's two commands that I know and understand and recognize that I fall short and have to constantly acknowledge this to God and confess it. And then I'm going to turn over here to a fellow that is falling short of, of in, in, in a sense that he doesn't understand some particular point or doesn't agree with me on some point, And there's no way the blood can take care of that. It can take care of me of falling short of love in the, in the perfect sense, but it can't cover him from some sin of ignorance on that. And then the question becomes, am I willing to say that there's no possibility that I'm ignorant right now of some things? Is there any Christian that is willing to be so brazen and, and so bold as to say that there's no possibility that there are some teachings that I'm ignorant on and wrong on right now? Well, all I know is that my experience has been that I've been been a Christian for about almost, well, for 30 years now. And over, there are a number of things that I understand in a different way than I did some years back. And uh, yet I think I was just as saved then as I am now. Well, then the question is, it, is it possible for me uh, to be saved on, even though I'm wrong on some points because I'm sincere and I'm confessing to the best of my knowledge and understanding, and yet this other fellow cannot? And I think that's something to think about for anybody that is going to break off fellowship with a fellow believer, fellow disciple of Jesus, whom you know is sincere in his convictions, but just simply because, in your judgment, he's wrong on, on some particular point. Okay, uh, look over here to, uh, uh, let's see, verse uh, 22 of chapter 2. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is an antichrist. He that denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Okay, so John states definitely that involved in this business of, of remaining in fellowship with God or being in fellowship with him, uh, involved in this is acknowledging the deity of Jesus. And there's no fellowship with God, separate apart from Jesus. Okay, notice something else in that second chapter. We mentioned this thing about darkness and light. In verse 9, he says, uh, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. So according to John, anybody that can look into his heart and say, I love my brother, and that's love in the agape sense. Agape means that attitude of heart where we desire what is best for the other person, even to the extent of being willing to, to uh, uh, give water to an enemy or something to eat to an enemy, that if you look into your heart and say that's there, that's an evidence that you're walking in the light, according, according to John here. Okay, now, flip on over to Second John, because this particular passage has been used... Uh, among groups who broke off fellowship with and denounced and labeled individuals who may be equally sincere in their belief in Jesus as they are, but who in their judgment were wrong on some particular point. And I'd like to look at this in its context. Second John, uh, Barbara, would you read that first? Just read verses 9 to 11, Second John. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Okay, now look at that. He said, anyone who runs ahead or, as another translation would say, transgresses, does not continue the teaching of Christ, 
does not have God. Okay, and whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him in your house, don't welcome him, don't bid him Godspeed, you're sharing his evil work. Well, this passage has been used to look out here at, a, at an individual and hear somebody who maybe believes in Jesus just as much as you do. And it's obvious. And it's obvious that he loves his brother, and it's obvious that he's walking in a, in a way that it shows the characteristics of Christ in his life, and he believes the Bible, and that's obvious in, in many ways. But here he is, in your judgment, he's wrong on some particular point. He's doing something that you don't think he should be able to do. So we call him a liberal. And we and we say, hey, you know, he's, he's just not as respectful as he should be. Uh, he doesn't have the right to do that. And we argue with him, and, and he makes it clear he, he believes he does have the right to do that. Or... Maybe he's not as exact as we think he should be on something. We think he should partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Uh, he says, I partake of the Lord's Supper. But whether it's every first day of the week or sometimes on Thursday or once a month, I don't believe that's the important thing. So we differ with him, but then we use this passage and we say, you know, we, we can't have anything to do with him. We can't bid him Godspeed. We're going to have to break off fellowship with him. This has been used so much this way that on churches that I've been affiliated with, I have seen churches break off fellowship with other churches simply because they believe in spending money out of the treasury in a different way, or because they believed in church cooperation in a different way, or because they believed some other little different thing about the Lord's Supper. And so we would use Second John 9-11 to and break fellowship with them. Well, first of all, if, if that interpretation is right, then I'd have to say there, there isn't anywhere near the compassion or the mercy in the New Testament that I see in the Old Testament. Because I've got some very plain statements over there where Moses assumed that there would be times when people would, would sin through ignorance and that that fellowship was not broke with God and that when they became aware of it, that they could make their confession and everything. And I see them breaking off fellowship only for willful, premeditated sin. Let's look at the entire context here. All right, all right, Barbara, we'll go back now and start at verse uh, 7 and read 7 and 8. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Okay, notice that now, that uh, he's talking about deceivers, who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Any such person is a deceiver, an antichrist. Watch out that you don't lose what you work for. Right after that, the next statement is, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, I'm going to suggest to you that that teaching of Christ there is the teaching concerning the deity of Jesus, that he is God come in the flesh. And whoever continues in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. In other words, you can't have the Father without the Son. If you continue in the teaching concerning the deity of Jesus and that he was God come in the flesh, then you have both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The only teaching he's been talking about here is the fact that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And they never understood this in such a way that, that you don't have anything to do with somebody that you believe is wrong on some isolated particular point there. There's no better way to show this than to look at the book of Acts. And all through the book of Acts, you know, sometimes we portray the first century church as being in perfect harmony and fellowship, you know, and, and we want to go back, we say, to the first century church, to New Testament Christianity. But when I read the book of Acts, I never do find this perfect unity. Not that truth is not given, but that I see people from all different backgrounds and different levels of growth and different knowledge and they come into Christ based on being convinced that he was raised from the dead and he's the son of God. And then they begin a learning process. And while they're going through that learning process, it seems to me that they debate and argue and practice different things. And we see in the book of Acts, for example, that, uh, that when the Gentiles first come in, it took years of debating and arguing with the Jews to get them to accept this. When it was revealed that uh, circumcision was not required 
to make one a Christian or to make him saved or put him right with God. It took years of arguing and debating with the Jews. He just wouldn't turn loose of circumcision. When we read about that great debate in Acts, the 15th chapter, to the best that we can ascertain, that's somewhere around 49 uh, A.D. And so for somewhere around 16 or so years, the church has been in existence. The Gentiles have been in the church for about eight or so years. And yet here they are still at this point debating and arguing that issue. And there were believers in the church who were contending still for this. All right, they came to a conclusion and then the letters would go out. But still people are going to wait for those letters and then they're still going to argue it and debate it. Then we come over to other churches that are established and we find that Whatever the background of the individual, that when he was converted to Christ, that background didn't just go away. That he had many false conceptions of sometimes morality, uh, sometimes doctrinal points. And it took a period of reasoning and studying and debating. And then they become come to see more and more alike or like the apostles want to see on these matters. That we may have the truth in the New Testament. But you don't sit down and read the New Testament and comprehend every bit of it in a night's time or even a, even a week's time. And there is nobody that is so detached from his environment and his past that he sits down totally unbiased and perfectly interprets every single passage. And I know I've had to deal with myself through the years that there have been any number of times over the years where I had to recognize that, hey, I missed the boat here. I was wrong on this. And when I found out that I was wrong, and I went back and I said to myself, well, how could you have been wrong, you know, all those years? And you studied that particular point out. But I was also studying from a certain background and a certain framework. And for example, my experience has been that some things that I believed as a result of sermons that I had heard preached in the past, that as I began to read those passages in their context, that sometimes I realized those passages had been taken out of context. For example... 2 John 9-11, through 11. I had that preached to me, and I preached it myself. And then as I studied the writings of John, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in their context, I came to believe over a period of time that, that verses 9-11 through 11 of 2nd John had been taken out of context and misused. The same is true with Nadab and Abihu. In my young years, I got up and preached that example and used it relative to people that I believe was wrong on some particular point. And then over the years, as I studied and continued to read the Bible through and through on my own, I come to realize that, hey, you're not doing justice to that passage. You're taking it out of context. And yet I was using it initially because that's what I had heard preached. And I went back and read it, and I thought, well, that's what it says. So I'm saying that I don't believe I'm unique in this. I believe that all of us have had experiences where we honestly and sincerely thought a certain way in a passage because we had been taught it that way, and then when we read it, maybe somebody uh, pointed out something to us about it that we didn't know. Maybe we read a brochure or a commentary or whatever it was, but, or maybe through our own, just reading it over and over. But we became enlightened to the fact that, hey, I'm not being totally honest with the context there. My bias has, has got in my way. I think we all have experienced that kind of thing. Another thing that we do with the Bible, and that is that uh, we go to it, as if the writer is writing it directly to us today, instead of first studying it in its historical setting. And thereby, sometimes we uh, very sincerely take matters that maybe had to do with their customs and think of them as applying directly to us today. You know, and, and I'm not interested in any specific right now. I'm just saying that I believe I have done that in, in the past. The point is, you can be very sincere and very studious and come to a wrong conclusion. And God knows that. He made us. And uh, another point I think that emphasizes the fact that... Okay, we'll go ahead and, and finish up on the uh, discussion there. That uh, Jesus made the statement to his own disciples and John recorded in John uh, 16. And beginning with verse 12, he says, I did not teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it. But the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And so there's the, Jesus was with his disciples for three and a half years. And these are devout Jews 
who have studied the law of Moses all their life. And in teaching them concerning the new covenant, he spent three and a half years with them and still didn't teach them everything because they weren't yet able to handle it. He knew they had certain biases, certain prejudices, and he had to teach them things about the kingdom that was different than what they believed because of their misinterpretation of certain, uh, certain statements in the Old Testament. And there were any number of things that they had a misunderstanding of concerning this kingdom, and he was constantly reinterpreting things for them. And after three and a half years, he still hadn't completed the job. Well, if that was true of the apostles, why wouldn't that be true of me? And, that, and, and even at, after three and a half years, and they reached the point where uh, they actually see him crucified and, and buried and raised, and, and now they recognize him as the Messiah, but they still don't understand it all. They still don't understand all the truth about the kingdom. And it'll be several years down the line before Peter finally comes to grips with the fact that the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs. And it took a lot. And then later on, uh, Paul will have to rebuke Peter before the entire congregation because he's not, he not practicing what he actually had come to understand right then. So what I see is that that whether we're dealing with the Jews when they were given the law of Moses, or whether we're dealing with the apostles as the Lord was teaching the new covenant, or whether we're dealing with the early church in the book of Acts, is that it's one thing to come to believe that this message is from God, to come to believe, for example, that Jesus is the Son of God, and then another thing to come to perfectly understand all of the things that he wants us to know. And what is required there is a period of study. And we need to be thankful for the mercy of God and that we're in a situation where as long as we're in a process of studying, that we can be cleansed by his blood, that whenever we find we're wrong on some point, we repent of it, where we stand forgiven, that uh, we can live every day and know that we're not going to stand condemned by, for God in our, in our judgment uh, simply because maybe we're wrong on some point due to ignorance. Well, if we're going to allow this for ourselves, then surely it seems to me we're going to have to allow it for, for other people. Now... I'd like to, the next passage to turn to over in Romans, the third chapter. Romans 3 and uh, verse uh, 20 and 21. Uh, Jack, would you read that, please? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 20 and 21. Okay, and then going through verse uh, 22 and uh, 23. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for though there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a... Well, that was the line. For okay, all have sinned and fell. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption okay. that came by Christ Jesus. Okay, then look at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify a law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Okay? Notice, he's not condemning God's law. God's law is right and holy. In fact, Paul said in Romans, the seventh chapter, that God's law was spiritual, it was right, it was holy. Uh, the psalmist said, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The problem is that man at his best just simply doesn't live up to the law. The problem is that man sometimes studies and doesn't understand something in a correct way and sins through ignorance. There are other things that a man does understand, and through weakness of the flesh and, and giving into his temptations, he just simply doesn't come up to it. And so he's in a miserable condition. The law is perfect, but it condemns him. 
And so God provided a way that's separate and apart from the law that man could be saved. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's convention is, is not that God doesn't have a good law. He does. Not that the Lord hasn't given us some perfect commands. He has. But that our only way of being justified before God is by grace through faith. And that not of law keeping that anybody should boast before God. So as a Christian then, although we strive to do things that are right, and we want to study the New Testament, and we want to be as right as we know how to be, and practice it as right as we can, but yet we don't want to do it from a haughty standpoint of thinking, hey, I'm saved because I partake of the Lord's Supper in an accurate way, or I sing in exactly the proper way, or we are organized in the exact right way. Or we do this ordinance over here more exact than somebody else. That's not where we're saved. We're saved for only one reason, and that's the blood of Jesus and his grace and our trust in that sacrifice and our willingness to repent of our sins to the best of our knowledge and understanding. That's all anybody can do is repent to the best of his knowledge and understanding. And so we have no boast in those things. Well, why do we partake of the Lord's Supper as correctly as we know how or believe how? Or why do we want to sing as correctly as we can or do anything? It's simply because we, we, we love the Lord and, and we love his law and we know his law is right. And so obviously, the better off we're going to be to the extent that we do study it and do it in exactly the right way. But it, it's not with any feeling of earning or thinking that we're saved because of that. And again, we can look over to this other individual and the question becomes, are we in fellowship with him? Do we recognize him as a disciple if he differs with us on some of these little points? And from what I can say is that if that person believes in the deity of Jesus and has repented of his sins, and in his heart he's as right as he knows how to be, and he's striving and studying and has an attitude of heart where he's confessing his sins to the extent that he sees them, and he's willing to repent of whatever he sees, I recognize that person as a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow disciple of Jesus, who maybe I do disagree with on some particular points. And there may be some specific things that I do not fellowship with him in. Uh, in other words, my conscience obviously will not allow me to worship in a situation where something is going to be done that I think should not be done. And his conscience may not allow him to do something with me that I think it's okay to do. And so, in order to protect our conscience, then obviously we would not fellowship one another in those specific activities where both of us could not do it in good conscience. I'm not going to try to force anything on him that he cannot accept in good conscience, and I don't want him trying to force something on me. But that doesn't mean that I cannot recognize him as a brother or sister in Christ as long as he has his belief in the deity of Jesus, has repented of his sins, and he is obeying God to the very best of his knowledge and understanding and is willing to change in any area where we might improve his understanding, just as I should be willing to change in any area where he can improve my understanding on, the, on that particular point. And when I read the New Testament, that's exactly what I see. People believing, repenting, being baptized into the Lord, and then a process of discipleship where they learn over the rest of their life uh, and constantly they're improving in their knowledge and in their behavior. And when I go to examples in the New Testament where people are withdrawn from, each time I believe it's a situation where they're in willful disobedience to God. Like uh, remember 1 Corinthians, 5, 1 Corinthians 5, where they were told to not associate with a particular individual. Well, this guy was committing adultery with his father's wife. You know, whether that was his own mother or just one of his father's wives, the text doesn't say. But this guy was in a willful, premeditated, sinful condition, and the congregation was just simply ignoring it. And he told them that they needed to correct that and not even to company with that individual. Or in Second Thessalonians, where contrary to what Paul was teaching, there were people there that were sponging off of others and, and not working and living off those who would work. And Paul said, if a man won't work, then neither let him eat. And he told them not even to associate with those that were living in that way. So it's one thing to break off fellowship 
with an individual who is disobeying God willfully and refuses to repent of it, which would be in perfect harmony with their practice in the Old Testament, it's another thing entirely to say that you're going to be out of fellowship with this person that you know. Uh, and, and all indications about his conversation in life is that he definitely believes in the Lord as much as you do. And he believes the Bible as much as you do. And it's just simply that he has an honest difference with you on a few points. There's a complete difference between those two categories. And I believe one is a sin that's walking in darkness, and the other is a type sin, if he's wrong on some point, that is in the light and can be covered by the blood of Christ. Any comments that uh, if you want to make on that, or any point that uh, we left out you'd like to discuss? One point I did think of uh, also, remember in Acts 17 where it says that uh, in times of ignorance God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, this passage too has been used to uh, withdraw fellowship from a sincere believer if he's ignorant on some point. You said, well, over in the Old Testament, God winked over ignorance, but he's not doing that anymore. But when we read that sermon in Acts 17, Paul is preaching to people who are in idolatry, who do not have a knowledge and understanding of the true God, and he's speaking to Gentiles. And that's his sermon at Athens. And he's simply saying that back there, when they were in ignorance of the true God, now, Paul said that there was no excuse in not believing in God, like in Romans 1.20, the invisible God is declared by the things that are. In other words, that, that uh, the creation cries out of a creator, and the the cause-effect understanding would allow us to know that for every effect there's a cause. So Paul said, there's no excuse for not believing in God. But the true nature of God is one that would have to be revealed. And there were thousands upon thousands of Gentiles that had operated back through the time of Moses and all without revelation. I mean, the only ones that got revelation were those that came in contact with the Jews and with those, with those Jewish prophets. And so God winked over their ignorances of the true God because they were in ignorance on some of those points. But now, Paul said, God's not winking over that ignorance anymore. What has happened? The gospel's going out to the entire world. And not just the Jewish prophets preaching primarily to the Jew, but now the gospel's going out to the entire world. Everybody is being taught and called into it. And God simply is not going to wink over this ignorance of the true God. Well, to take a passage where Paul is talking to people that have been in idolatry in their history and saying that God now has revealed himself in Christ and this message is going out and he's not going to wink over that kind of ignorance anymore, to use that to apply to people who are devout believers in Jesus but in your judgment are ignorant on some particular point to my mind, it's like Second John verses nine through eleven. It's taking it out of context. That uh, and all again, we have to do is look at ourselves, and and we have to ask ourselves the question: If God not winking over ignorance, if that means that Christians have to perfectly understand everything to be saved, then I'd like to know who is confident of his salvation. That who is the Christian that's willing to stand up and say, "Hey, I'm the one that has the perfect." knowledge and understanding of, of every matter. And so, and then obviously, uh, Peter makes a statement that when we become a Christian, we come in as a babe in Christ. And then he said, you long for the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So he said, as a babe in Christ, you're ignorant of a lot of things. And therefore, you have to keep studying to learn. All churches that I've been affiliated with have Bible study on a regular basis. Why have Bible study? Except you acknowledge that you've got room to learn something. And so the very fact that, that, that we have Bible study and that we acknowledge that we know, we know that we don't know it all, then we're saying that we recognize really that that statement that God's not winking over ignorance anymore doesn't mean that, uh, that when you've got a devout, sincere, believing Christian who is simply ignorant on some point, that God's not going to wink over that anymore. If that's the case, again, we've got a New Testament that does not have as much mercy as the Old Testament did because he did when they, mis when they misunderstood something then. So I think in Acts 17, 30, 31, or in also 2 John 9 through 11, if you read them in their context, they don't say 
what sometimes they've been used to say uh, concerning this, this matter of fellowship in the sense of breaking fellowship with a sincere believer who just simply happens to differ with you on some particular point. I would guess I've changed more in this area over the years than any other one point. And my study in this area has been motivated initially by all of the division I've seen in the very church that I've been a part of. Mm -hmm. That I have seen churches divide and divide again. I have seen sincere people at odds with one another because they had a different understanding of some particular point of what you could do or not do or what you should do in some point of worship. And it has motivated, at least me, to go back and to examine that and try to see what in the world that the Bible did say on the subject of fellowship itself. And I think a, a proper understanding of the teaching of the Bible on fellowship would stop a lot of the splitting. It would allow us to have a more harmonious relationship with one another uh, that we could prevent, present a more unified front to those in the world uh, if we could just simply make it clear that this the big thing we're united on is the deity of Jesus, the fact that we are saved in him by grace through faith and not of works, and the fact that God's law is perfect, and, and that the will of God is perfect, and that we want to study it and do it as well as we can, but by the same token, you might see some differences among us, not because the law is imperfect, because we're imperfect. We've got different biases and different prejudices and, and we're at different levels of knowledge and so that uh, sometimes we differ on some point because I misunderstand it or the other fellow does but, that, but we're always striving to come to the best knowledge and understanding possible and thankful that we're all in Christ and saved for that reason. Anything you have? Um, along with the ignorance um, we thought tonight you know, I think that God doesn't, you know, we shouldn't withdraw from people just because they're ignorant on something, if they're sincere in what they believe. Don't you think along with that, someone that is just weak, um, that, that would not, they're trying to do what's right, but they fall short, that in that case, that would not be um, grounds for disfellowship either. Um, and I have reference to Romans 7 and 8 where, Paul, he says, in his inner being, he delights in God's law, but that he sees another uh, law at work in the members of his body waging war. And then he, he goes on to say, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin? And again, he says um, in verse 25 that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but the sinful in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Then he continues in chapter 8, saying, Therefore there is uh, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his Son as an offering. Yeah. I think I know, one of the things I think of when you talk about that is, we know the Bible condemns drunkenness and becoming intoxicated. And of course, I believe that's sinful and it's wrong enough. But sometimes we have the experience of going out here and reaching a person who, for Christ who became an alcoholic back in those sinful years. And so they had to first make the decision to drink before they could become an alcoholic and all. But then once they got started drinking, they actually reached a point where their body became addicted to it. And so they're in a situation where even when they quit, if I understand it correctly, they'll always be an alcoholic and there would be that temptation and that if they took a drink, they could go right back. Well, I can see where you'd have a situation where a person would become a Christian who's an alcoholic, and his body has become addicted to it because of the, the sins back here in, in the past. And that that individual might slip while he's a Christian, but as long as in his heart he's saying all the time, I know this is wrong, and I've got a problem, and I need to work on it, and I'm willing to work on it, and I'm going to keep fighting it. Well, then I can look at that person as as uh, somebody that is constantly cleansed in the blood of Christ. In fact, Barbara and I had an experience with a lady in the Northeast that would she would have periods of time where she would stay off the bottle and then she was back on it. Then she'd repent and then she was on it. And she would repent and she really fought it. Now the last I heard, she was off of it completely. But she had a fighting process. And I think when a person comes into the church, there ought to be some toleration for whatever problem like that there may be. Another person might have it with their temper. 
that, um, uh, that uh, in other words, they're not going to conquer that thing overnight. And it may be that we have to be tolerant. And the big thing is, if, if as long as they're willing to acknowledge the mistake when it's made and repent, like um, Jesus said to Peter, if he, if he repents, not seven times, but seven times 70, you know, you forgive him. I see the same thing with drugs, how that we're going to reach people maybe that have become addicted to drugs. And then as a Christian, that there may be that time when they slip and go back in and we have to show some compassion and work with them and, and everything like that. And as long as you can see an attitude of heart where they love God and they want to do what's right and they're going to come back and fight that thing, then I think that is not willful premeditated sin. There's a there's a there's something that you have to work with there. And I'm, I believe that would be true of any any number of things. Uh, the that thing on the knowledge, I can see uh, reaching a person who has a background where maybe he has been taught false on on X, Y, and Z doctrines. And it may take a period of several years of reasoning with that person before he sees that point, but yet he ought to be able to feel comfortable and feel like he's loved and to be in fellowship and everything all the time that uh, he's in the process of growing and maturing on those points. Okay, then we'll go ahead and conclude it. And one thing I'd like to say as we conclude the study for tonight, that uh, we do not intend this to be an all-inclusive study of fellowship. We fully recognize that there are many other passages uh, that could be studied. There are other thoughts that could be brought in. We fully recognize that maybe we could stand enlightenment on some particular passage that we did deal with. But at least for the time available to us in this particular study tonight, we have studied these passages, and for those that hear it, we would like them to at least examine these passages and think very seriously about the subject of fellowship from the standpoint of just what exactly does the Bible teach on the matter, what is to be our relationship with people that it's obvious that they believe in the Lord, uh, they've repented to the best of their knowledge and understanding, and they just simply have an honest difference with us on some particular point. What is the relationship? I believe that person is a brother or sister in Christ, even though I may honestly and sincerely believe he's wrong on some particular point in his worship or some other action. As long as that wrong is due to ignorance on his part, and I feel that the same grace would be extended to me. That as long as whatever I'm wrong on is due to ignorance on my part, then he ought to receive me based on my belief in the deity of Jesus, my repentance of my sin, the fact that that I trust in Jesus for my salvation.